This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Republican state lawmakers are poised to cut tens of millions of dollars from the University of Wisconsin system. The legislature's Joint Finance Committee is set to vote to eliminate about $32 million in the state budget, reports the Associated Press. Republican leaders say the move is meant to zero out funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on UW system campuses. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss told the AP that spending should be directed to programs that are, quote, more productive and more broadly supported. Democratic Governor Tony Evers responded to the cut on Twitter, calling it a, quote, short-sighted move to gut our UW system and part of, quote, Republicans' decades-long war on higher education. Two North Carolina attorneys have pleaded guilty to charges of election fraud in Wisconsin related to a sham political action committee. The Associated Press reports that the two men, Jack Daly and Nathaniel Pendley, created the PAC back in 2017, claiming they aimed to convince former Milwaukee County Sheriff David Clark to run for U.S. Senate. But according to court documents, most of the $1.6 million that the group raised was spent to personally benefit Daly and Pendley. They kept collecting donations even after Clark announced he would not run for the Senate. Sentencing is expected in September. Governor Evers plans to make about $50 million available to help Wisconsin families with home heating assistance. The money comes from a federal government grant program and will give an extra boost to about 170,000 households that have already received heating benefits, according to a press release from the governor's office. This additional assistance will provide an extra $279 per household on average for a total average benefit of $637. The governor also allocated an additional $8 million to help residents stockpile fuel oil and propane before demand and price increases in the winter. Eligibility for the state's heating assistance program is based on a household's income and family size. A federal investigation has found that two amputation injuries at a northern Wisconsin meat plant were caused by company negligence, WMTV reports. The U.S. Department of Labor says Abbeyland Food Inks did not... Abbeyland Foods, Inc. did not follow machine safety standards, resulting in two separate injuries to employees last year. One lost part of a thumb in a meat slicer, and the other suffered a crushed hand from a trash compactor. Abbeyland faces more than a quarter million dollars in fines. The Labor Department has cited the company for more than 20 serious violations in the past decade. The person accused of firebombing the offices of an anti-abortion group in Madison is seeking to have federal arson charges against him dropped. WISC-TV reports that attorneys for Hirindu Choudhury filed a motion this month to dismiss the charges, arguing the statute is unconstitutional. Prosecutors believe Roy Choudhury set fire to the offices of Wisconsin Family Action and defaced the building with graffiti last year. The damage occurred shortly after the leak of a U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning constitutional protections for abortion. Roy Choudhury was arrested in March and has pleaded not guilty. And now on to today's top stories. A bill heard in an assembly committee today would create a division within the Wisconsin Department of Revenue to enforce state alcohol laws, tighten permit laws, and regulate out-of-state shipments. The bill has received bipartisan support as well as support from breweries and other alcohol producers. WORT reporter Abigail Levins attended the hearing today and has the story. Most important question of the day, 
does it affect tailgating? That's Representative Michael Schraw. Speaking about a 150-page bill regarding alcohol regulation at a committee hearing today. And lawyer Mike Wittenweiler confirmed that no, the bill would not prevent tailgating, nor would it have a significant impact on consumers. Instead, the major impact of the bill would be on the alcohol business, particularly alcohol manufacturers, wineries, breweries, brew pubs, taverns, and retailers. The bill, sponsored by Republican lawmakers, would create a division of alcohol beverages to enforce alcohol laws in the state. Many Wisconsin alcohol laws have largely been ignored. According to the Associated Press, proponents of the bill say the division would act as enforcement. The bill's authors, which include Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew and Assembly Majority Leader Tyler August, say the bill is a compromise long in the making between state legislatures and the alcohol industry. It would bring together the three tiers of the Wisconsin alcohol industry, the manufacturers, distributors, and retailers, in what Representative August says is a compromise. Well, I think that that all the stakeholders that have been involved at the table for the last 10 years all agree that this is, if they had had their wish, this is not the package that would have been put together for their particular tier. So everybody has to give a little, but everybody can take a little. And, And at the end of the day, that's what produced this package. The bill has many provisions which tighten several alcohol regulations in Wisconsin with its creation of the Individual Enforcement Division. Lawmakers say regulations on shipment from out of state that go directly to a consumer's home have been ignored. The bill addresses that by requiring out-of-state permit holders to comply with Wisconsin law at the risk of losing their permit. It also creates a requirement on shipping alcohol to individuals' homes, requiring proper labeling and information about the person shipping and the one receiving the shipment. The bill would make small adjustments to some hours for taverns and restaurants. National political conventions would be exempted from that rule, including during the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee next year, when retailers would be open until 4 a.m. The bill would also create a statewide permit for alcohol licenses. Assembly Speaker Robin Voss says there has been a shortage of alcohol permits within counties, and this gives those seeking license room to choose between a state license and a local license. Voss says this would simplify the process for those wanting to relocate their business. So I think you will see more opportunities for entrepreneurs to open something up and for consumers to choose another location if they want to go and eat, drink, and enjoy themselves. The bill would also allow liquor licenses to be transferred from one municipality to another. Madison officials, including a spokesperson for the powerful Alcohol License Review Committee, could not immediately respond to how the bill would impact local operations. Implementation is scheduled for four months after the bill is passed. And Voss says this is manageable because the Department of Revenue, which oversees the new division, has been part of the discussion and is prepared for the changes. Representative August says that the bill requires a certain number of staff for the new division, but Representative Francesca Hong was concerned that the division would not have the resources for the staff. The president and CEO of the Wisconsin Grocers Association, Brandon Scholes, says the bill is important for eliminating the illegal practices like unregulated shipments. Uh, but it's just one of those uh, pieces of legislation that, as I say, you know, it, it's time for it. It's time has come just because it does start to answer lots of questions that have come up over the years as businesses have grown, as, as consumers have, you know, purchased products. And so this is, uh, this is just a good thing, long time coming. As of this afternoon, 15 industry groups had registered support for the bill. That support includes the Tavern League, Quick Trip, Anheuser-Busch, and a New Glarus Brewing Company. Only one group had registered against the bill, the Wisconsin Farm Bureau Federation.
The bill was introduced last Thursday and appears to be on a fast track from top Republicans. A Senate companion to the bill has not been introduced as of broadcast. Voss tells the AP that he expects the bill will pass the legislature in the next few weeks and is optimistic that Governor Tony Evers will sign it. A representative from the governor's office said in a statement to WORT that their office is still having conversations with the Department of Revenue about technical changes to the bill and providing resources to implement the bill. Reporting for WORT, I'm Abigail Levins. Madison got a whole new set of bus routes on Sunday. Transfer points no longer define the city's network, and the route names have changed from numbers to letters. This switch is a product of years of designing, planning, and public engagement efforts by the city. The goal, officials say, is to increase the reach and frequency of service. While some are seeing gains from these sweeping changes, others are struggling to navigate the new system. WORT reporter Hee-Wan Lim surveyed riders earlier today about how their routines have been affected by the major shifts. The rain had already started when I arrived at the Capitol and Memorial Union bus stops. I asked people how frequently they rode the bus, what their thoughts were, and if their routines had been changed at all. My name's Brian. Uh, well, I've been a driver for about two and a half years. I love working for Metro. It's like the best job I've ever had. I like the changes so far. I mean, it's so early into the changes that it's it's hard to know how everything's going to play out because we're only really t- two days into the service. So they're still kind of trying to work the kinks out of the system. But I think, and just like talking to people on the Street as a Ride Guide, I found that it, it, it does benefit more people than is a detriment to, but there are definitely people that are not benefiting. It's really important for people to actually give their feedback to Metro so they can call the number that's on every bus stop, the 608-266-4466, or email them. They really want people's feedback so that they can make adjustments. My name is Max Beardsley. So I'm actually a part-time driver for Metro as well. And, you know, like Brian, I really, really like it. It's um, it's a nice, consistent schedule. It's really easy to do that. And, you know, attend my classes and stuff. It is just a very, I'm actually a student at UW. And so, you know, I live downtown, don't have a car. The buses is one of the main ways I get around. It's just a lot more frequent service. Buses are coming a lot more often. I don't have to look up schedules. I can just go out and know that there's going to be a bus there in the next like 10 minutes that can take me where I need to go. It's definitely a change for everyone, but I think in the end, it'll be a really, really good change once people get used to it. Mark Fitzgerald. I commute uh, downtown about three times a week. I, I really like how the the new uh, the new routes simplify things uh, on this sign behind me here you know the old sign shows just a, a an absurd number of routes where the new sign you know has it down to about four paul Follett, very infrequently um i hope to take it more we live in some prairie and today i had a dentist appointment and i came down here after parking in the sun prairie park and ride so the daily, multiple daily run from Sun Prairie to the square, I believe prior to the changes, it was only on a commuter basis at the beginning of the day and the end of the day. So yeah, I plan on riding it more. My name is Danny. Um, I think overall it's better. There's definitely been some growing pains. Um, like right now I was supposed to get on the B and it just didn't show up. Um, that said, though, um, overall, like my experience has been better. I can like 
ride the bus into town and I have like a way to get into town from home now whereas before I didn't have anything on the weekends um, and unless I wanted to walk over just like a really sketchy pedestrian bridge now I can actually be at home and like reliably have transportation pretty much anywhere in the city. Metro representatives are available to assist riders and to answer any questions at 608-266-466 or via email at mymetrobus at cityofmadison.com. For WORT News, I'm Hewan Lim. When a child is enrolled in a public school, state and federal laws protect them from discrimination based on their sexuality, gender identity, or disability status. But when it comes to private schools, that is often not the case. An investigation by Wisconsin Watch found that taxpayer dollars are going to those private schools discriminating against LGBTQ and disabled students through the state's voucher school program. Earlier today, WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Phoebe Petrovic, an investigative journalist with Wisconsin Watch, about her series examining discrimination at taxpayer-supported voucher schools. Now, Phoebe, tell me about how the voucher system works here in Wisconsin. So a parent decides that they want to send their child to a private school. What, what happens then? Yeah, so if a family, well, first the family would go to DPI, the Department of Public Instruction, go to their website and see if they qualify for a voucher, a tuition voucher, because that is based on income. Um, so, uh, and what if your income for however large your family is, um, you know, is of a certain percentage of the federal poverty line. And DPI has a ton of resources on what's what schools participate in the voucher program. Um, And then it's a matter of applying, filling out the application on the website of DPI and then setting something up with the school. And so um, DPI facilitates all of that information or that process. But at this point, only families that meet eligibility requirements related to income, age, residency, those sorts of things are eligible to participate. And now as they're sort of going through this process, and as you mentioned in the series, they the students themselves cannot be discriminated against during this sort of selection process when they're working to be enrolled in a specific school. But once they're technically in the school, it becomes a different story, correct? Exactly. So state law lays out very clearly the sorts of eligibility requirements that a school can use to evaluate whether or not to um, accept a child or accept a student. And so admissions is highly regulated by the state or laid out in state law. And it's these basic eligibility requirements that I mentioned before, age, income, residency, I think maybe prior attendance, things like that. And then it's a little bit different depending on the voucher program you're applying to. There are four in Wisconsin, but some of them have uh, a random lottery drawing all the time. And then uh, that's one of them. And then most of them have a random draw if there are more applicants than there are seats. And so they're not supposed to consider anything beyond that, those basic requirements and admissions. Um, However, once a student is accepted and enrolled, roles in the voucher school, then, as DPI says, school policies apply. And so what we found is that there were schools that say, you know, we really, you know, we we may expel you or discipline you for being gay or transgender. And DPI would have to come in and say, you know, you can't 
prohibit or exclude LGBTQ students in admissions. Um, but once that student is enrolled in the school, then if the school policy is, you know, they don't permit gay students, then the students can be kicked out. And all like you sort of alluded to there, your series looks at discrimination against LGBTQ kids as well as uh, students with disabilities. And I want to start off with that first one there. Of the voucher schools you looked at, you found that uh, about four out of ten of the schools that you looked at had policies on the books that appeared to target LGBTQ students, correct? Uh, tell, tell me about that and what those schools are and how that looks for those specific students. Yeah, so I looked at about one-third of the voucher schools in Wisconsin. So um, I looked at 123, and I found, yeah, four in ten of the ones that I looked at had some sort of either policy explicit in their handbook or a statement of faith, maybe on their website or also in their handbook, or a form or something else that indicated LGBTQ plus animus or discrimination. And so that really sort of ran the gamut from schools that said straight up, you know, if you are a person who's gay or transgender, this is not the place for you. Um, we may expel you for, for living your truth to statements of faith that didn't, that said, you know, it's a sin to be gay or trans, that the only rightful sexual contact is sexual contact between a man and a woman who are married and anything beyond that is sinful. But then those schools might not necessarily have anything codified in the policy And then many of the schools I looked at also specifically had sections dedicated to sort of transgender and gender nonconforming students in particular, saying that, you know, you couldn't access puberty blockers while on campus for the purpose of gender transition, which means that cisgender kids who might be prescribed puberty blockers can still get those. It's only the trans kids who can't. Things about not permitting a student to self-identify a pronoun that aligns with their gender identity things like that. And now your series also looked at discrimination against students with disabilities. Uh, what, what can you sort of tell me about that and what that sort of looks like? Yeah, so I spoke with a, a disability rights advocate, Joanne Junkie from Disability Rights Wisconsin, and she described it to me as disability being sort of baked into the cake of the voucher programs. And so what this comes down to is, again, in Wisconsin, there is no state law that prohibits discrimination against disabled students in voucher schools, same as there is no state law that prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ individuals who are enrolled in voucher schools. And so so because of the lack of the state law and then because of federal limitations to federal law, like some federal laws only apply for schools that receive federal funding, like for a lunch program, and it's not clear how many do. And so if you don't receive any federal funds, you're not beholden to that. Or there's sometimes an exemption um, for religious institutions. And uh, 95% of voucher schools in Wisconsin are religious, according to our calculations. Um, So all of that means that day to day, students who have disabilities can be, again, expelled or kicked out because their needs might be greater than the school can accommodate. The school is only required to make sort of minimum accommodations, minimal changes or adjustments to their curriculum or operations in order to accommodate a student. And so if they say, you know, you know, if they decide that a student has higher needs and they can't accommodate that sort of in a, in a minimal manner, then they can kick them out. Um, and 
uh, this education advocate, um, disability rights advocate that I spoke to says that she feels calls from parents over this, um, across the state pretty frequently concerned about this, not realizing that if there was a dispute, um, the school could pretty quickly move to expelling them um, and they might not have other options because you, you waive some of those more robust federal rights that you have and protections when you enter a voucher school as a student with a disability. Now, I want to talk a little bit about how you did your research for this story. Now, uh, you, like you said, you looked into over 100 of these private voucher schools here in Wisconsin. Was that all looking through their handbooks, or were you able to talk with any administrators at any of these schools? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I wish that I was able to look at all 373, <laughs> um, but we just didn't have time. I just didn't have time, so I had to k- keep it to a third. And I, I scoured their websites. I looked, read their handbooks, things like that. And I, any school that I mentioned in the story, I contacted them directly um, to ask for comment, to ask for an interview. And no administrators, no school, no pro-voucher organization, um, and no church affiliated with these schools granted an interview or answered questions. So a couple of them sent written statements, but most of them either ignored my calls um, or my emails. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even I tried to reach out to one school in particular where um, when I emailed them a second time, I found out that they had blocked my email so that I couldn't contact them by email anymore. And when I called the school to follow up and ask about that, they hung up on me. So I really had hoped to speak with people from these schools or from the organizations that support them or the churches to, you know, sort of ask about this. Particularly on the disability side, there is um, an argument to be made from folks about, you know, whether or not they, as a small, as potentially as a small school, have the funds to offer a special education program that's separate or things like that. But I wasn't able to talk to anyone or get their perspective. I've been talking with Phoebe Petrovic, reporter with Wisconsin Watch, about her series on discrimination at voucher schools here in Wisconsin. Now, Phoebe wrote four stories on the subject, and we just sort of scratched the surface here. So go ahead and read all of Phoebe's work for yourself online at wisconsinwatch.org. Phoebe, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. While UW-Madison may be on summer break, that doesn't mean there isn't news coming out of campus. This week on a special summer edition of Cardinal Call, new producer Gavin Escott speaks with state news editor Ava Menks about attitudes regarding free speech on UW system campuses. Welcome to the Cardinal Call, your dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. This is our special June edition, here to bring you the latest summer news. I'm producer Gavin Escott, joined today by State News Editor Ava Mix. Thanks for joining us, Ava. Hi. Today, we're discussing her reporting on the UW System's free speech survey. Ava, can you give us a picture of what the survey was about? Yes. So the UW um, System Student Survey was initiated by Professor Scheel from UW-Stout. 
and it went across all 13 campuses for UW system. And its goal was to kind of gauge what students were feeling in classroom settings and also in their school environment about how their free expression was perceived and if they felt comfortable enough to share their views or if they kind of felt like they were censoring things. And I think the end product of the survey was kind of to see how can we help nurture and foster free expression on college campuses while making sure we are addressing issues where students might not feel that all speech is comfortable for them. So this survey has had a rocky rollout. It was initially proposed last year and it was postponed. And during that process, it forced the resignation of an interim chancellor at one of the UW schools. Can you explain why this survey was so controversial? I think that, honestly, what I've understood about it is that it just didn't fully cover everything that people were hoping for, from my understanding, is like I think some of the questions were phrased in ways where it didn't give the full picture of stuff. So for instance, a self-censoring question, like why would a student self-censor in a class? And it and it said for the majority of the time that it was conservative students self-censoring. It kind of showed one side of the coin and it didn't ask, okay, what else could self-censoring be? Could self-censoring also be something that's like, we're just making sure that we don't want to hurt someone else around us from saying something or like what they didn't ask many nuances to things. And I think that's kind of one reason why I guess it could be deemed controversial. Ava, can you give us a picture of what the findings of the study were? The the biggest takeaway that I had was some of the percentages were 92% of students expressed their unfiltered views on a controversial topic because it, because they said that they knew enough about the topic, which is, that's great to hear. And then there was another similar 91% of students that said it was because they could speak about a controversial topic because they cared about it or were encouraged to speak. And so that was very hopeful. But then some of the other findings were that only one in 10 students reported that they would be, quote, like extremely likely to consider viewpoints they disagreed with. And I would say that's a little bit of a cause for concern um, just because it means there's something going on in classroom settings where people aren't speaking up about something or people are being raised in a certain way where they're not open or people are being narrow-minded. And then that kind of ties into the whole other findings that I think left a bit of a controversial stain on the survey was that conservative students were more likely to perceive a negative response while speaking in a class. And then it was like, but just 10% of students reported experiencing like social consequences for speaking up on a topic. But again, there wasn't many nuances explored or like digged deep into these like answers. So we didn't actually know like what the nature of these social consequences were. And so people, at least in the hearing for the assembly, um, the first one I went to, a lot of representatives were kind of questioning why were conservative students feeling like they had more social consequences or that they weren't able to speak up in class because it was, I think it was around more than half, like 50% of students who identified as liberal felt comfortable enough to speak in class. So I think my biggest, yeah, my biggest takeaway was kind of this like political ideology spectrum of like which students are like comfortable in speaking and then which is, which aren't and then why, except we didn't, the survey didn't really dig too deep into that. So, yeah. You talked to state representatives on both sides of the aisle. 
Did they have different views on the issue of free speech on college campuses and their interpretation of the findings of the survey? So I actually got to interview the representative Emerson, who um, identifies as Democrat. But she, if we're talking just survey, she was the one who kind of gave me the answer about self-censoring that was really interesting because she said self-censoring isn't not having free speech or free expression. She said it's realizing that people have a different viewpoint and that you're stopping and you're thinking, how is how are my comments going to be received by this other person? And I thought that was interesting because she said she just didn't agree with the premise that conservative students being self-centered is like them having social consequences for their identification school. And then I think other things in terms of survey that I think were interesting for her is that a lot of um, identified Republicans kind of said that universities can be problematic because they're left-leaning. And it was interesting to talk to her on that because she said, well, she used the military as, a, as an example because people in the military, I guess, that's the demographic that kind of goes into that. And so she was like, well, people on the left side of the political ideology scale kind of lean towards just being people who go into higher education. And I think it was interesting to kind of see her. She had issues with the surveys. It seemed like both sides um, from the hearing. I, I do wish I was able to talk to a Republican from the committee to, to kind of get an opinion on that. But it, from my understanding, it did seem like both sides had disagreements and agreements on how the survey was conducted because I think it didn't fairly show kind of the full results of like the why like conservative students feel so self-centered. So the assembly hearing you attended in April, what were some of the main highlights you heard from some of the Republican lawmakers on that front? Because you mentioned the Democratic side, uh, Representative Emerson. She said that self-censoring, that was something that wasn't as real as some people made it out to be, Is if that's my understanding. What was the Republican take on that? So a few things. So Dr. Jacqueline Pfeiffer-Merrill, who's from the Bipartisan Policy Center, was the one who kind of gave an opening statement to the committee and it seemed like she the republicans and her found common ground on the idea that um, there needs to be more conservative faculty to represent conservative students while at the same time she also did say in a contradictory way that people shouldn't be hired for their political viewpoints which was a very confusing thing to kind of understand what she meant by that if she wanted more conservative professors. But that definitely was a Republican point for on that topic of conservative students and conservative speech. But another thing that was interesting for the flip side of more, more of the Republican viewpoint is some of them agreed that people who are Generation Z have a lack of tolerance for um, different viewpoints, which I wish, you know, again, I really do wish I had the opportunity to interview more Republicans from the committee on this because I think I don't want to take certain things out of context if I don't know the full understanding behind it. But it just seemed like they were trying to, I guess, share the issue that maybe younger people aren't as open-minded as they believe that they could be, um, which is why they may want more conservative faculty. So thanks for joining us today, Ava. That's all for Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out for more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
it's Tuesday, which means it's time once again for Trail Tuesday. This week, WRT contributor Reed Kamai heads to the village of Oregon and Keller Alpine Meadows Park to take in its sights and sounds. Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. This week's destination is less forest-like, but still full of natural beauty to explore and take in. In the northwest portion of the village of Oregon, it's Keller Alpine Meadows Park. Keller Alpine Meadows Park takes up over 100 acres and is the site of the walking trails next to Lerner Conservation Park, which itself covers 65 acres, according to the village's Park and Recreation Plan report from 2018. The village has received funding from the Knowles Nelson Stewardship Program, a state-level source, to use for the parks. There are multiple spots to enter the loop that surrounds Keller Alpine Meadows Park, but the easiest is at the parking lot off West Netherwood Road a road bounded on the west by Fish Hatchery Road. You can also get there by taking alternate U.S. Route 18 to exit 139 and going south on North Main Street, also known as County Highway MM. In that case, you would turn right onto West Netherwood Road. That parking lot is where I started my voyage. You'll observe that the trail from the parking lot extends towards the left and right. If you want the main trail loop, turn right. This is a paved pathway that mostly is near the roads surrounding the parks. We will get more towards the middle of the area and away from the roads soon, and that's where we'll find the good nature sounds. Soon you will reach a fork in the path. This marks the main loop for Keller Alpine Meadows Park. For reasons I will mention later, I recommend staying straight and going counterclockwise on the loop. I, however, turn left. The path develops more twists and turns as reeds and even some trees surround you and any birds who are present are easy to spot, as was the case of one red-winged blackbird. Shortly thereafter is another fork. A slight right turn takes you on a grass path towards another point back on the main loop. We'll visit that shortly, but I stayed on the paved path. From this fork, you can see a large pond up ahead, which we approach by staying straight. The path takes you right around the pond, so you can view it from many angles. It is in this vicinity where some unique features can be found. Facing the pond are two dedication benches, one of which commemorates the dedicatees with dolls tied to the bench. The birds I mentioned earlier have a home in a high-up birdhouse, which appears to have at least 14 ledges and entrances across the four sides. A metal art sculpture of an eagle created by local 3D artist Rob Eagle is on display on the outside of the path near a short end of the pond. This south end of the park is where most of its wetlands and wildlife habitat are based. Jeff Rao, the village's director of public works, says that this helps with the village's efforts to manage stormwaters. Most of the significance behind it was formed to be able to allow us to um, form some large water retention pond, natural pond areas, that uh, there had been some significant flooding occurring in the village. and. Um, due to some development, and the hope was that by adding some ponds in this area that would help alleviate some of those flooding concerns, and that has actually worked really well. This is conveniently situated for the village, with neighborhoods, the village offices, and other local resources just across the way. Now though, we are near another road, this time Jefferson Street, and at another fork. Turning right and going over a small arcing bridge keeps you on the loop, so that's where I walked. With the pond still to your right, you can see some ducks and other birds as you continue along. When I walked by, there was an interaction between some birds that took me by surprise. 
Ooh, those look like herons over there who just bit at the bird that I think almost landed on top of it. That incident took place about halfway between the aforementioned bridge and the intersection between Jefferson Street and Alpine Parkway. The main loop bends to the right and continues right alongside Alpine Parkway, and that's what I followed. When I took this walk, there was construction on a building that I would have passed if I remained along the main loop. I was able to stay away from it by cutting to the right just past a marsh to take a grass path instead. This will take us back to the fork I mentioned earlier, where the grass path split from the paved one. I recommend this path if you're content with a shorter walk and you want more sights and sounds of nature, though sadly the construction noises were still within reach when I visited. This path is lined with many more trees than other routes in this visit. The trees are among 150 planted by volunteers in the park. During hammer-free spells, you can hear the birds loud and clear like I did. Notably, the grass in this path, especially near the fork in the middle of the park, is somewhat tall. Perhaps the village simply hadn't gotten around to mowing, but I could feel the grass on my shins thanks to its height and my wearing short socks. Once you get back to the paved path, make a slight left to head back towards where you began. The full loop is just under two miles long. The path I took stretches just over one mile. Along the paved trail, you will see yard signs staked into the unpaved surroundings. Each sign displays a page from a picture book about natural resources that can be found throughout Keller Alpine Meadows Park. This exposition is part of the Story Walk Initiative organized by the Oregon Public Library. I found two such books featured along the loop. The pages face folks who walk counterclockwise and run in chronological order that way. This is why I earlier recommended that direction of travel. I, having not been aware of the signs until I arrived, viewed the pages in reverse order and had to turn to read them. If you want to explore more walkways around here, back at the parking lot where we walked to the right to find the loop, head instead towards the left. That path takes you parallel to West Netherwood Road. You will find two further split-offs towards the north. The first one takes you on the Oregon Rotary Trail and in the direction of the Badger State Trail. The second split-off takes you on a shorter trail that ends at Braun Road, a short street connecting North Main Street and Cusick Parkway. However you explore Keller Alpine Meadows Park or any of the nature locations I present in this Trail Tuesday series, I feel compelled to address the outdoor conditions in recent days. The UV index has consistently been in the high range, so make sure to apply plenty of sunscreen and drink lots of cold water, and bring them with you in a bag on the trail if possible to use while you walk. I also recommend wearing a hat and longer clothing. I wear a polyester long-sleeved shirt when I go out to record. It protects my arms from the sun without heating me up too much. Of even greater concern lately is the poor air quality caused by the wildfires in Canada. Be sure to limit the time you spend outdoors, and if you still have one from 2020, wear a mask outdoors, especially if you fall under what the National Weather Service describes as sensitive groups, which include children, older adults, and anyone with a lung disease. Or better yet, stay home and wait for the air quality to improve. Trail Tuesday will be ready when you are. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Cannon. Grape jelly. It tastes great on your PB&J, and it's fruit-based, so it should be perfect for birds, right? Well, not quite. 
Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg breaks down how this sweet spread can pose a threat to birds. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about grape jelly. (laughs) I know that sounds really strange, but we had a really great question come in from the Madison Audubon, who's one of our partners, who said that they've been getting a lot of questions lately about grape jelly and bird feeding, and whether or not it's safe for like hummingbirds or orioles or other birds that, knowing we commonly see injuries that are related to that, you know, is it actually safe? What are the harmful? you know, downsides to feeding grape jelly. And I decided to do quite a bit of research this week to dig into that question. So as a rehabilitator, I'm going to start with what are my kind of general advice or bullet points that I would tell people. The first one is keep it simple. Really, if you're going to put out grape jelly for birds, yes, we know that birds like it and that they'll enjoy it because it's a sweet, delicious, I mean, we like our peanut butter and jelly. It's a substance that they are going to be attracted to. But I like to say keep it simple, meaning use natural jams and jellies made without artificial ingredients if possible. And that's just because there's a lot of preservatives and other chemicals and things that are in our food that if it's not really good for us, it's probably not good for the birds necessarily. Also, my second point is don't put too much out for the birds. They have other natural food sources that are around in the area, otherwise they wouldn't be here locally. If they didn't have enough of a food source, they wouldn't stay here to breed or to go through on migration, etc. And they've got plenty to access at this time of year. Really, if you're going to feed jelly or other types of um, additional, you know, human-made foods, just give enough to supplement because they should be getting the most or majority of their diet from natural food sources. Whole fruits are probably better than jams and jellies. If you think about birds and what they're attracted to out in the environment, the birds are going to be seeing fruit trees in places where fruit trees are common, and that's going to be a major food source for them during migration or just before migration, depending on where they're going. And so if you're going to put out a jam or jelly, you know, I think of this as... Do birds have the ability to make jams or jellies? No, they don't. Will they utilize it? Sure, because it tastes great. But honestly, it's better for them to probably eat a natural fruit that they're going to be used to eating. So when people put out oranges for Orioles, that's something I think of as, yeah, naturally they're going to find that if they're going to fly to places where there are orange trees growing everywhere on a plantation or, you know, I think of Florida oranges, right? So that's going to be something that I think in the long term is probably better for their health. Also, volume and presentation of your food is key. The more that you give them and the wider the spaces that you're presenting, then the more likely they're going to get stuck in it. So I say that because we get so many birds, you know, over the years, sure, it's not like a high percentage, but it, it to us, it's so many birds that get stuck in jellies and jams and other things like sticky glue traps and stuff. Like if there's a lot of space and there's a lot of stuff to stick to, they're going to get stuck to it. So when you're presenting jams or jellies to birds outside, put it in a small dish, put it in some sort of feeder that they actually have to extract it out of, for example. The more you give out on a big wide dish where a whole bunch of birds are going to congregate, the more they're going to get their feathers in it, the more those feathers are then going to get stuck together 
water and they're gonna have trouble flying. We've had that a number of times where those birds have to have multiple baths over and over again to get that sticky substance out of their feathers. And they would be sitting ducks, uh, pardon the pun, which is not really a good pun, but they'd be sitting out in the wild without the ability to fly and then be predated on, which is not something we want for those birds. Also, it's food sitting out in a long period of time, especially in the hot summer heat, it's kind of risky, right? So when I was looking up information just for human risk, you know, according to the USDA, if it's a perishable food like jellies or jams, you're not supposed to leave it at room temperature for more than two hours after opening it. So when I think about that, you know, you've got ideal conditions for bacteria growth and, you know, increasing the risk of some sort of foodborne illness. Now, we know that birds all have some low level of salmonella bacteria that's in their GI system. So sure, it might not be exactly the same for them versus us, but there's plenty of indications that uh, excess bacteria growth when it gets into the digestive system or if birds like hummingbirds are eating it and you've got sugar that's just you know sitting there growing a team of bacteria and they drink it, that can't be good for their health either. So you know, having that excess bacteria is not something that's going to make them feel better. It's probably in the long run going to harm them over time. If they have enough of it. So it kind of depends on the volume that they're ingesting. But I would say as a recommendation, you know, if you're going to change out your feeders, uh, do it daily if it's something that has to do with sugar or sugar water, like for hummingbird feeders or for jelly and other fruits. Fruits are a little bit, you know, hard to say whether or not leaving them out longer would be any different than it would be in the wild. But I think for the freshness, if you're able to, I think it's great to only put out a little bit at a time and that way you can change it out. So those are my tips about feeding grape jelly or other jellies out in the environment for our birds like our Orioles, um, but also thinking about our hummingbirds in this situation because they will also be attracted to it as well as a number of other birds. Just thinking about the quality, the quantity, the freshness, and how you're presenting it to those birds in the environment. Thanks for listening today. Uh, hopefully you learned a little bit about our birds and feeding jelly and putting it out in the environment. Thanks for listening here on WORT. We appreciate your, your listening. And if you ever have any questions about wildlife, uh, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Your reporters were Abigail Levins and Hee-Wan Lim. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Reed Kamai, Gavin Escott, and the editorial staff of The Daily Cardinal. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wuggiehout produced this newscast. And Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe wherever you follow podcasts. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with the Enrico Patio. Good night.